All right, so this is season three. Welcome if you're new and hello again if you're coming back to hang out. My name is Sydney Lai and this is Decoded. This is where we talk about, well, we have conversations with other devs to really understand like, what are they building? What do we want to build together? What is the best way to build this? And really to get inspired. I like to think of this as like beyond just another technical documentation, another YouTube video where you have to like, you know, click past the ad screen. And I just say, if I have just one ask, if you could just leave a review, that really helps. If you leave a review, it helps two ways. One, I just would love, like, I love our guests and I would just love for others to discover the great content and knowledge that our guests have to offer. So if you can leave a review, it really helps with just sharing this episode. And I guess number two, it also helps me understand like what resonates with you, right? So if I understand what resonates with you, I can better, I can better create an experience for y'all. So yeah, that's my intro. And I guess with that, I just want to say like today, we're really going to go over and understand like the different generations of code and how do we as devs really tackle legacy code and legacy projects. And I typically think of it as like old school stuff, but really, man, some of this frameworks change so quickly and like Google's deprecating AngularJS. It's pretty nuts. Like it's happening. Let's, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's go. I'm so excited you're here, Joe Eames. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining. Oh, man. Thanks so much, man. And and it's so great to speak with you because I know you are a just by trade and by like by your journey, you're a software engineer and you're also the founder of Thinkster, where you bring developer education on, on a mass level, right? And so today, what I really want to understand from your perspective, let me give a little bit of context. One of the ways I got really started in my developer journey was going to a lot of conferences and meetups and not just learning, but it was contextual learning from my peers, learning from really a conference in a way where you're able to help me get hyped up, help me understand the context of what I'm building for. It's not just writing line by line, but hey, here is a conference where there's just so many exchange of ideas. This is what's coming. This is best practices. This is kind of like what we're moving together as industry moving forward. And I I guess with that, I I really want to know about your experience transitioning from becoming a a software engineer and, and then doing that and then also becoming a huge educator for engineers and then building really the resources and the conferences. Like what has that journey been like for you? And why is that so important for developers? Yeah, you know, if I squint my eyes a little bit, the journey seems straightforward, but it really had so many little bumps and bruises really along that path. I spent the first four or five years in probably a fairly typical journey, got that, finally landed that lucky first job I just lucked into and started my development career. And when I think back to what it was like as a developer, that first job and how little I knew and how little I didn't even know how little I knew. And then as I I move forward, at some point, I remember I went to this first conference and I was doing Microsoft work back when I first started Visual Basic or C Sharp or ASP. I don't remember exactly which one. And I went to a conference at Microsoft and I remember the the fact that my 
company would pay for me to travel to Seattle to go to this conference, I thought that feeling of just thinking, wow, I've arrived at this journey where I'm so, I'm so valued that my company would pay for me to go. And I went to that conference and I saw people speak and talk to other people. And that was absolutely a transformative experience for me. Getting, we were bussed around from the Microsoft of various buildings here and there and to go to different things. And it was, it was super cool. And it was years later when I started getting involved into conferences, but that experience definitely made a difference to me. And then I attended a lot of user groups. And so, you know, before meetup.com existed, came on the world and redefined the term for what we have, right? We called them user groups before we called them meetups. And I attended meetups and there was a community that was there and that encouragement, that learning from other people, sometimes within the company. For me, that was such an important part. I think it's interesting because sometimes development is seen as a very solo-friendly job, right? It maybe is seen to attract people who don't really want to do a lot of interaction between other human beings. They like the opportunity to sit down and work through the problems themselves. So we talk about flow, right? Get into the flow as a, as a developer, and that's when you're most productive. And then the minute somebody walks over and interrupts you, now I'm out of the flow and I hate that, so leave me alone. I remember these stories from Microsoft that the most important thing was the developers. I knew a manager there, and he said, the developers were untouchable. They'd be in their offices, the doors closed, and you weren't even allowed to interrupt them, right? Even though you were their manager, you weren't allowed to interrupt them. And so we have this viewpoint that development is an in-the-closet, dark room, sit down, churn through something, and come out with that. But after you've done some development, you realize effective products aren't developed like that because they have to change and, and switch over time. And then the people, they have to communicate. And what we get out of it as human beings, human beings are hardwired to connect. So that what we get out of that community helps push us forward as individuals to, like you said, what's on the horizon? What is somebody else interested in that fascinates me, that gets me interested? I had this dark moment in my career. I had been developing for 14 years or 13 years, and I thought I wanted to go into management. So I took this opportunity to get the promotion to be the tech lead, and now I was coordinating three teams, and they were on two different continents, and I really thought I'd made it, but man, I hated that job. It was a lot of stress, and it, for a lot of reasons, it didn't go well. And I had this low point in my career. And one of the other engineers said, come with me to the software craftsmanship user group. And I went to that and I met these incredible people who all cared about how you craft code. And I just, I found this group that for this, that time for, I don't know, it was a couple of years maybe of my career that I just finally felt like I identified with somebody. And that has happened to me multiple times, but I remember that, how this very dark period of my career turned into, it, it, that was a transformative. I met some really key people. I met the CTO of Pluralsight who invited me to author courses for him, which really changed that. I decided to move my career to front end and take a new challenge. I'd only been doing back-end programming. And I was like, I'm going to do something. Chal I'm going to completely reset myself for almost 15 years as a back-end developer. And I thought I was hitting this pinnacle. And I said, I'm going to reset it and go do something I've never done before. And all that came from that community. So conferences, 
I do conferences. I've organized, I don't know, eight, nine, ten conferences now. React Conf for Facebook and the big Angular Conference, NG Conf, and a handful of smaller ones. And every time I know in my heart that the real thing that I can provide is not so much the idea that I can, like, hey, I learned to code this thing. It's the connection that people take away and what that does to them personally and for their career. I love that aspect. Yeah, very well said. And I think you're absolutely right that there is this this common misconception that when you are building, you like to build in a silo. I do understand the flow state. I myself, I love that sensation in a flow state. May it be something that I'm programming or maybe playing some music. There's there is that just that bliss. And I think I think to your point that this communal approach, this community approach to building and designing, it is so critical, not just for creativity, but also the understanding of how do you tackle current existing technology products. So you've mentioned you've been doing backend for 15 years. I myself didn't know that, but something I'd like to learn more about is how have you seen, like, I would imagine there needs to be some sort of unity or come togetherness when you're approaching legacy projects or deprecating projects. Um, You have been around a bit longer than I have, and I think you've also been building longer than I have. And so when it comes to the way we as developers interact, I typically interact with a lot of startups or or just even just little tiny demo projects. And, And you've been able to see various life cycles, and you've been also able to see what happens when there are maybe unmanaged or forgotten code or orphan code? And and how do you, yeah, yeah, I guess, how do you deal with that? And as a developer, how, what should be top of mind when either dealing with legacy products or projects? So I'll give you the, my very first quickest piece of, I don't know, garnered wisdom possibly on this front, the, the quickest one. And then I'll dig in a little bit more to some of those. But the first thing to do is I always recommend everybody read the book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code. That is such a great book because at some point in your career, if you have a career of any length as an engineer, you're going to end up in either a moderate amount of legacy code or a major amount of legacy code. And trying to organize your career to avoid that, it is possible. It is possible to avoid that situation, but I think you miss out on a lot of things. Sometimes that's community. Sometimes it's being part of something big. Sometimes it's fixing a really important problem. A lot of really important problems around business exist in legacy code. It feels good to say, I'm only going to work on greenfield projects. But honestly, if you have a poor team or you yourself are not doing the right things, a greenfield project becomes what you might call a brownfield project pretty quick. You know, It doesn't have to have 500,000 lines of code to become a legacy product. It can become a legacy product with 10,000 lines of code if it's done improperly. So I always encourage people, don't avoid those situations, those jobs that are like, oh, I'm moving in to support a code base that's been around for seven or eight years. I don't know if I want to do that. Don't avoid that situation. So first off, that book is so great. And for me, it also changes my mind. He redefines, the author redefines the idea of what legacy code is in a really cool way. And I won't spoil it. I'll let you get into that. But I think that there's an awesome challenge to taking a legacy product and dealing with it in one way or another. So Uncle Bob, I saw him speak. He's a fantastic speaker. And he gave this talk about what to do with these old projects as you move them. And he's never rewrite was his number one piece of advice. Always migrate, always move things slowly. And you can, even in a 
situation where you think that's completely impossible, it can be if you work through it hard enough, and that's really good for the business because it reduces a ton of risk. First off, working with legacy code is always your attitude. And it's being honest with yourself, right? Sometimes it can be a more draining time to feel like I'm working with code that's hard to work with because I didn't build it, somebody else built it, I don't like the way that they built it, right? Isn't this this truism of developers? The worst programmer in the world is whoever wrote the code we're supporting. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's actually very true. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know if I say if it's true, but I've heard of this and I love that. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels so much like that. Oh, let me tell you exactly how terrible that code was that I have to deal with and fix, right? But we weren't there. We didn't walk through the problems. We didn't walk in their shoes and see the pressures that were on them when they did that code, the issues they had to deal with, the changing requirements, right? So... First off is attitude. Have a good attitude about, be conscious of your attitude. You can't just, I don't think it's easy to say, be, have a good attitude. That's a poor thing to say. Instead, be conscious of your attitude and be aware of yourself, right? Like if you just acknowledge and identify your own feelings, that gives you more power to control them than just about anything else. So acknowledge how you feel about what you're dealing with. Step number one. And then to see it as a challenge, the challenge that it is, the opportunity to take something and make it beautiful that maybe isn't beautiful yet Make it beautiful either again or for the first time. Make it beautiful, pull it apart. One of the greatest feelings you can have as an engineer is to take that 2,500 line file that nobody has been willing to touch for four years and everybody's afraid to and it has critical processes and eventually, you know, improve it bit by bit, incrementally until you finally master and tame that dragon. That's a dragon that you can't experience anywhere else. You can't fight anywhere else but in a situation like that. And that the best things in the world are the accomplishments that come from doing hard things. So don't be afraid to do hard things. Look at them. And then, of course, always check your attitude. Be conscious of yourself and your feelings when you're working with things like that. And let me tell you a funny experience that I had. I came to this company. It was actually the company I had. There was also a dark time in my peer, in my career, but... When I first came in, I had, in that phase of my career, done a lot of engineering, and and I was a little bit added to the team to try to help improve the engineering quality of the team overall. So one of the things that I did, I was the team lead, but it was before I was promoted to tech lead, was I talked a lot about, hey, let's spend extra time on our code, let's make sure our code quality, and I we had that 2,000-line piece that was very critical, but everybody was afraid to touch. And so I constantly use this as an example of we don't want another one of these files, right? We don't want another 2,000 line single component that does too much. And I use that frequently. Well, after about three months, one day we're in the middle of a meeting and one of the engineers suddenly burst out and said, I'm tired of you complaining about that code. That code works. And turns out the guy had written it. He had written all that code himself, and I was so insensitive to constantly use that as a bad example. I should have used more abstract, but (laughs) I still remember feeling so bad and apologizing to him afterwards for being so insensitive about what he had done. Hey, listen, what's that saying? You can't tell someone their child's ugly or something like that, but right. And it's, and I think it's our art. It's our cooking. You can't say that our meal tastes bad. It's like, I made this dish for you, you know? And I think what it comes down to we all have the tools to, this is a weird analogy, like we all have a kitchen, we have a saucepan and spatulas and, and ingredients and stuff like that. And with every cook and every developer, the way we present a dish, the way we deliver a dish, the way we pair the flavor profiles of the dish, is, I don't know where this is going, but I, I, it's the point is I'm trying to say is that like, 
this is the best that we can do. It's still food. You can eat it. It works. You're not going to starve tonight. Sometimes beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I think that, um, and I think that when it comes to developing and, and maybe even dealing with legacy code, I think to your point, it's, it's here. How do we want to approach it? And I think you talked a lot. I mean, just to kind of recap, you've talked a lot about essentially the intent and also essentially how can we as a community come together and kind of bring forward and extrapolate their intent and how do we maybe not start from scratch, but either to your point, migrate or clean this up or, or tackle this. I mean, there is a reason I'm talking very high level. There is a reason why this is legacy code. There is a reason why this has been around for as long as it has like we think about space being pioneers, the rover being pioneers, but you betcha they're using legacy code. They're using legacy operating systems because it works. It works in space and it's tried and true. And gosh, I don't, I don't know where we're going with this, but yeah. It makes me think of something that I think has been really great. In the last four to five-ish years, I think I've noticed a very conscious movement to say, accept the imperfections in what you produce as an engineer. And we can extrapolate that to everything about being a human, but accept the fact that you're going to write code that isn't the best code in the world. It has some value to say something like that and have it in mind, the idea of constant improvement. But on the other hand, especially with shame, right? Never be ashamed of work that you've produced, of code that you've done. Instead, honor what you did and embrace the opportunity to improve, constantly improve and be better. But the most important aspect of code is that it works right? That's what lets businesses run. So even the code that we might complain or criticize about in the end, if it actually worked and accomplished the business goal, that was the number one most important thing. And and we spend a, a bunch of time in these groups where we talk about, oh, we got to always do better. And, and let's talk about how bad code can be. And that's, you got to be careful with that. Approach that from the right perspective. I even look, I'll bet you've had this experience. You know that you've got a piece of code that you've written and you know it wasn't the best code, right? You can see it yourself, right, Sydney? And then somebody says something about that code negative and internally you can't, even though you agreed with them, you would have said, if you said it, you would have been fine. But the fact that, that somebody else said that probably hurt your feelings. You ever had that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I remember something similar was I... This was a few years ago and I was delivering to another engineer my code base and they looked at this code base and they're just, <laughs> they had just gone out of a boot camp and they're like, what is this? And I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? And then they're like, no one, no one, I don't remember what it was. They're like, no one used brackets like this anymore. And I was like, uh. I was like, it still works. <laughs> and I'm like, who, who are you whippersnapper to tell me? And you know, <laughs> it was, and it was just this moment of like, ah, like, come on. It's, and, but it was actually quite funny because I mean, yeah, they were right. I was like, oh yeah, no, you're actually right. And I was like, oh, that's actually quite hilarious. I'm like, oh, I should probably brush up on X, Y, and Z. And, and then I was like, honestly, I'm actually impressed that this still works. Right. And so, but I mean, again, I mean, this was like a B2B software. It wasn't anything crazy, but I, I think to your point is that you want to be improving. And at the end of the day, as long as it works, there are some things that uh, may not work well. There's, um, I think it was like 1994, 1996, there was a spacecraft. I was, was a butter wee sprout, but there was a spacecraft and I used to work in the space industry. There was a spacecraft that blew up. It was a huge cost. It was a launcher. It blew up. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and the reason was because there was a software 
A software engineer had made a mistake, a human error on the variables. And they were trying to shove this like 64-bit like variable within within a 16-bit integer. And what ended up happening was that it flipped the rocket like 90 degrees or something like that. Yeah. And so boom, it just explodes, right? There are these much bigger critical code bases that you really, really want to go into and 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 take care of. And and I guess from from your perspective, I mean, have you seen like I guess what are some of the differences between the legacy code base or dealing with legacy code base from the 2000s and then 2010 and then 2020? Like if we take these by a decade increment. Wow, that's a fascinating question. Yeah, let's see. In around 2000, I think that legacy code bases tended to be, well, I mean, certainly the technology obviously has changed, right? 2000 saw some really wild changes because of the internet. So in 2000, legacy code bases, right? <laughs> legacy code bases were the code bases of, holy cow, we have this internet. We can start doing this stuff on the internet. And everything that we've been building for the last four or five years, we didn't, in our mind, realize oh, the internet's coming. You know, the internet existed in 96, but nobody in 96 said, how can we start writing apps for the internet. So it was like 99 when that became sort of a thing. And so everything from, I think, 95 to 2000, suddenly developers are waking up and saying, oh my gosh, what I've been building, we have to start throwing away because we got to be on the internet or we got to, how can we map this over to the internet? I remember I worked in FoxPro. You ever heard of the language FoxPro? No, but Fox sounds familiar. But maybe I'm just thinking Firefox. <laughs> no, yeah, not related. But there was DBase, Clipper, and Fox. Where there was these languages, there were like these integrated databases, and they came up with some way to put Fox Pro on the internet. It was Fox Pro was never meant to be an internet-based language, and they came up this way to Microsoft put out this way to put it to build websites with Fox Pro. It was so clunky and so terrible. And then shortly after that, they came up with ASP, and then again, really quickly, it was ASP.NET. And man, we went through those revisions so quick. I know nowadays we look at the front end, we think front end changes so fast, back end's changing faster, and everybody complains about how fast the front end changes. But man, right there around that turn of the century. There was Y2K was going on. Everybody's freaking out oh about Y2K. Oh my gosh, I remember freaking out about Y2K. <laughs> I remember being a kid and I remember thinking, am I going to die? Is this how death right, works? Right, right. Yeah, you're sitting in your room and you know that, okay, it's 10 o'clock. I was worried about 10 o'clock because 10 o'clock was going to be midnight Eastern time. So it was 10 o'clock that I was like, is the news going to come on and say that the power's out on the Eastern seaboard, right? Or something like that. Or is my lights just going to go off at 10 o'clock? So we had Y2K went crazy, and then boom, there was a whole bunch of technologies that were the first attempt to get on the internet, and then the second attempt to build internet web apps, and then the third attempt, they quickly followed one after another. And we built all kinds of stuff that we had no idea what we were building, right? And when I say we, I'm the royal we. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, everybody. Gen generally, the nebulous yeah. humanity. 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 Yeah, we built all Beyond this. Beyond just devs. This crazy stuff, we didn't know what we were building. And some of the apps that I ended up working on over the next five years were just hilarious that were built back, you know, started off in there. I worked on a front end, we call it client-side rendering now. There was that term didn't exist, but I remember these guys built this client, I, I supported the system, client-side rendering system in like 98, probably 10 years before the term was ever coined. And just crazy stuff. So I think that that was legacy there, was we were learning to move to the internet. The internet, people were starting to realize that a lot of things could move to the internet. Not everything needed to be. And then there was the hangers-on, certain industries that were going to still stay with desktop-based software for a long time. But 
that was legacy then. 2010, I think, was the legacy of, I think, started by jQuery. I would call it the jQuery revolution, the JavaScript revolution, really, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Right? Until that point, it was server-side. Everything was server-side, ASP.NET, Java server pages, Rails, what was the, Cold Fusion? Cold Fusion was the rage. Yeah, you know? Cold Fusion. And the JavaScript, and I attribute it to Gmail. I think that even though Maps was kind of, I think, the really the leader, I think everybody was wowed by Gmail because Maps was less interactivity points. Gmail was crazy that everybody else was desktop-based apps and Gmail was kicking their butt with an internet-based interface, web-based interface. And so I think that the legacy code that we saw in 2010 was a matter of that switch, that transition that we were going to move to JavaScript. And so it was the JavaScript code we wrote between 2005 and 2010 that became our legacy pieces. Backbone, Knockout, jQuery. Then we went through this phase in like 2015 where it's like, oh, you're still doing jQuery. Let me let me pass down <laughs> yep. my judgment on how terrible it is yes. that you're still doing jQuery, right? Oh my gosh, I love it. As a uh, previous Ruby on Rails developer, I feel the same way. And then I have friends who do PHP, so I get it. I didn't know that you did Rails. So let me ask you a question. I'm fascinated by this because I learned a little tiny bit of Rails. Never did it professionally, but was wowed, just amazed by what it did. You know, when I first learned it in, I think, around 08... I think. Oh, wow. That was much earlier than me. I mean, but again, I just learned a little bit. I've heard that most Rails developers, even if they have moved on, are no longer doing Rails. And a lot of people are still doing Rails. But a lot of Rails developers say that they were never more productive in their career than when they did Rails. Would you agree with that? I mean, wow. Thank you for asking. I would say you can just build and ship so quickly. You can build and ship very quickly. The libraries and frameworks are really accessible. Twitter, I almost am certain Twitter first started on Ruby on Rails. And then they, of course, yeah, they've migrated off. There's really strong community. I guess you've never been more productive. I mean, that's a strong statement. And I, I believe that, but I, I would say to dovetail that point, it's like you can build. It was fun to build. It was quick to build. It was, I think the scaling, this is just my perspective. I think the scaling kind of is what ended up killing it because even when I think at its peak, and I'm just like air quotes, at its peak, Ruby on Rails and startups moving to Ruby on Rails was really probably around 2014, 16, around there. And even then, like, obviously there were so many users on the internet. I mean, without a doubt. But when you think about applications and the uses of applications, just in 2016, it's not like 2014 to now in 2021, it's the way you interact with it, the behaviors is so different. So that's that's how I think about it. What's that um, new email service? It's not 37 Signals anymore, but DHH's company, the Rails people put out. Is it is it me.com? It's not me.com, is it? I know what you're talking about. It's not yet. That's not. They, they like were superhuman. Really rethinking email. Yep. Like hey, hey.com? Uh, hey.com, yeah. Hey.com. Have you ever read about how they scaled? I mean, they're they're basically still running a, a Rails with a little bit of JavaScript, right? Do you read about oh my how God, they tell scaled? Me no, no. I, I don't remember everything, but they did whatever the database, MySQL, they had the sharding of that. And they talked about it. I don't remember. It was just interesting because DHH is a, an interesting character. He's absolutely brilliant. David Hanemeyer Hansen, for anybody who didn't doesn't know that, and, and his partner, Jason 
Fried Freed. I don't remember how to say pronounce his last name. Apologize, Jason. If you ever, if I'm sure he's a regular listener, <laughs> so when he hears me butcher his name, I apologize. They're both brilliant, right? Their ideas for Rails. I don't think people realize how influential Rails was and is to everything that we're doing today super influenced by rails and i don't think people realize that very much and certain things that they did never appeared that they should have like scaffolding should be standard in every framework i don't understand why it's not but they were so revolutionary in showing what could be done but if you're interested in in that you should definitely check out for all the listeners there's some articles that they put out about how they scaled hey.com using what most against the flow, and I love these things. That, oh, yeah, the only way to scale is we have to do exactly like Twitter, right? We have to have no sequel and blah, 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 right? We have to use whatever the flavor of the day is. We can't even say flavor of the month anymore because the flavor of the day, the change is too quick. And these guys said, no, we're just gonna, we're gonna do good stuff and do it well. And you know, I, I still think that Rails client-side rendering and front-end interactivity is su still super important. And unfortunately, Rails is missing out in a large part on that. They do have their front-end stuff with a couple of, I can't remember the name of the framework that they put out for client-side rendering that hooks up to Rails well. But um, It's not coming to mind. But now I'm very, like, I, I think Hay is a pretty cool product. And if it's like this air quote generation, if it's like the Gmail of this generation, I yeah, I, you know what? Gosh, maybe I'm too old now because I, I signed up for Hey the other day and I couldn't figure it out. I was like, wait, well, how do I do this? And then, and I still remember freshman year in the dorms waiting for my Gmail invite. Like you had to get like that invite. But um, but yeah, I could not figure out Hey.com. But uh, so just kind of to recap, you know, 2000, it was really moving from server side to the internet. You have 2010, which is jQuery really yeah, setting the stage rendering, of, I would call it exactly. Oh my gosh! I mean, and then even if I may side tangent really quickly, because I'd love to hear a perspective on the now tens decades of right now we have all of these operating systems that were created without the full recognition of how internet heavy our applications, our user experience. Is going to be so you have all of these operating systems that really came before the internet. So it's like, how are we going to, or do we need to redesign an operating system that is internet native or internet intent native? Because that was not the case before, you know, talking about kind of like legacy stuff in general. And, and, and this is legacy operating systems. But I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that or, or also just your thoughts of, well, I do think that now, and I'll, I'll jump back to your question about the uh, what is the twenty the twenty twenty legacy code, but I, as far as that question about OS is, I think that the cloud providers are kind of the ones leading the way in that. They've made it so that this problem they've abstracted it away. So if I would say there is an OS of twenty twenty, it's the browser. The browser is the OS of 2020, and the cloud providers are, are moving away our needs to understand and deal with OSs in a way that, I mean, that's certainly not my area of specialties, specialty either is that sort of thing. So I'm sure somebody who, yeah, somebody who knew just, more of this would have more interesting opinions. But I think that what they're doing is taking the OSs that maybe, like you said, could they be redesigned? They're redesigning them in, in a way by abstracting them out of our view, right? And so I think that this cloud serverless 
or either serverless or non-serverless, but whatever it is, they're fixed, they're adjusting and making those changes for us so that we don't have to worry about it anymore. Have you seen the new movie, um, Free Guy? No. Just I've... barely came out. That one with uh, Ryan Reynolds. Oh, oh, that guy. Yes, yes, Free Guy. Yes, yeah. yes. I've seen billboards. For, I, uh-huh. Right, gotcha. All right, let's let's go with that one. It was really funny to me because in the end, the bad guy's trying to stop the system by hacking up or taking an axe to the servers in the building. So he's in this, you know, they're in the corporate headquarters. He goes into the server room with an axe and starts hacking up. And I was like, this is so fake. Nobody has servers on prem anymore. What are you doing? First of all, that is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. I love that. That is so true. And then also, excuse me, spoiler alert, but it's um <laughs> Yeah, <but> sorry. Like- <laughs> we need to put a warning, a spoiler warning. Spoiler right, right, alert. Right. If you're an engineer, I think you're gonna hate the movie. Honestly. Right. It was so full of things that were about software development that are so wrong. Did they not have a consultant? It wouldn't have fit the film to actually try to even have any sort of parody with reality, unfortunately. So they had to be completely oblivious to reality. Oh, no. That's, I now, okay, honestly, now I want to watch this just to see the inaccuracies because I guess the equivalent is like me logging into like your Google Cloud console and then. Like, but that's just not as like grotesque in a way. It's not a movie. When you watch this, let's let's start up a, a Twitter thread about. I want to hear your thoughts. We want you to create a Twitter thread on all the things that you saw that you like. I, everybody I was with them was my wife and our friend and and they were and I think they all loved it. And I was I was just I hated it. I couldn't wait for it to be over. I was so it was like watching a high school play. <laughs> Oh my God, that's so good. I'm like just live right now. I'm like about to text two other software engineer friends. I'm like, hey, do you want to go watch this movie? Like right now. Yeah. So that's that's incredible. I mean, my brain just farted. I don't even know. Like, like where So but, let's so, let's let's go back to your finish up your question. You want to know what the 2020 legacy code is, in my opinion, right? And I realize a bit, a bit copying out by saying the, the legacy code is the code that was built over the five years before we realized, five-ish, ten-ish years before we realized what that change was. So in 2000, the change was the internet, the internet as an application platform. In 2010, it was JavaScript as a viable language, right? And I think in 2020, it's serverless, right? Or either serverless specifically, because serverless doesn't handle 100% of everything, but you can do most stuff serverless anyway. So, But I wouldn't necessarily say, maybe I'll be wrong, another couple of years will be like, yep, serverless really truly is it. But cloud-based, right? Non Anything that's non-cloud-based is now kind of the legacy. So how do we, now it's like, oh, crap, we've been writing non-cloud-based software for 10 years. What are we going to do? How do we get this? This is now legacy because we have to get this onto the cloud for all the benefits that being on the cloud has. So I would say that would, that would be my opinion on what that legacy piece is there and what we're going to have to do to deal with that. And of course, there's always the truism that legacy code is any code that you wrote that you end up being, my definition is the code I'm afraid of, the code I'm afraid to touch, right? That's legacy code. And that can happen in any place. In fact, I haven't done a lot of service with myself, but I hear that there's a lot of fear once you get to grow a serverless implementation past a certain point, because how the things flow through everything is really difficult to visualize and map and understand. And so that quickly grows out of control. So maybe serverless is legacy right from the beginning. I don't know. Well, I mean, first of all, that's so poetic. And I think that that's actually, I mean, it checks out, right? This evolution between going from server side to client side to then serverless, I, I think it's 
really, really well stated. And I, I don't think I often, I mean, we work, we grind, we build. And when we just sit down and take a few minutes to kind of think about just the last 20, is that math? 20 years? That's actually pretty darn nuts that within just 10 years, you can see the reasoning behind the formation of legacy code. And then it's also, it's also like, I think that legacy code, and I'm just thinking out loud here, when I think about it, it's like, oh, this is from the 80s or, you know, what? like there's a trillion years that has passed. But to your point, like legacy code could be like, well, that was two weeks ago. I guess that's no, do you... Python three now? Okay. All right. Well, I guess, right. All right. I guess this, uh, this happened to me the other day. I was like, I was doing something. And then another engineer was like, oh, that was Python two that you're writing in. And I was like, gosh, darn it. Like what? <laughs> and I was, I was like, what? But, but yeah, that, that, these are not words. I'm just making sounds, but I hope that these sounds just They illustrate. convey the emotion yeah. and the, the intent the, yes. there. Yeah. So I do three things generally. I run Thinkster as a CEO. I do conferences. And then I also sell extended long-term support. I've been in sales now for like six months, first time in my life. I sell extended long-term support for AngularJS because Google's cutting it off at the end of this year. They're no longer going to patch it and produce security patches and stuff. So I work for a company that provides this, xlts.dev. And so this is, a, this is exactly it. From 2010 to 2015, if you built a web application like 85% chance you probably built it in AngularJS. So today, here we are. They, Google's been announcing they're going to end of life it, but it was really only five years. Think about all that. I met with this poor company, and they're like a nonprofit. They had a guy who was way into AngularJS for a while, a developer. This woman who replaced him, she's more into React. They didn't even know until a month ago that it was getting end of life. And now they're like, we can't even rewrite our software and get it fast enough. That This enforced legacy idea that's coming on us because things change so fast is so, so tough. We built so much software in AngularJS, and nowadays, AngularJS was the thing until 2014, 2015. It was the dominant gorilla. I'm like awkwardly raising my hand because I'm not an AngularJS dev, and so I think my brain just exploded. Are you telling me that Google is sunsetting AngularJS or just support? Or their support for it. They're, so the repo will still live, but they're no longer going to patch any security issues. Or if the browsers come out with any changes that break it, they won't produce any more patches. So that's the company I work for. That's what they're they're taking on that job. They're going to do all of that. You have to sign up for it. But, but yeah. yeah, I mean, okay, yeah. So for sure, I'm going to drop the links because that that I see the problem. Everyone's like, great. So because. First of all, I'm a huge Google fangirl, like the pixel, the products, you name it, the services, I'm here for it. And and I say this in like a loving, endearing kind of way, like they took inbox from us. They took, you know, yep. took a few other things yep. I can't rub. Blogger probably, you know, the, the, but so now they're taking an AngularJS and I'm like, what? That is hilarious, first of all. And now I see why you're able to just speak at length, not just from personal experience, but through the years of development you've been doing, but also just... Sydney, it's crazy. Like, nearly every one of the world's major, like, Fortune 1000 companies is still running some AngularJS somewhere in their ecosystem. Where are they migrating to? I mean... Oh, that's for, that's actually really fascinating. So here I am, I'm dealing with these huge enterprise companies. And what are they moving their AngularJS to? It's literally about half and half React or Angular. It's about half and half. There's 10% that are going to something unusual. So less than 1% are going to Vue. I think Vue is super cool. In fact, I think Vue is more the spiritual successor to AngularJS than Angular was. But 
I also think that's a useful data point to consider in your life, right? Less than 1% are going to view, and then a few of them are going to something weird, but otherwise it's 50-50. They're going to React, they're going to Angular. Yeah, yeah, that's actually true. Now that I'm think, just thinking out loud, I have a lot of peers and who are software engineers, and and they've really just doubled down on React. They're hiring React developers like crazy, and what a humbling experience. And Joe, I just so appreciate you coming on and well, just you, sharing. Oh my gosh, it's been so much fun. I love Absolutely. the deep dive. I love nerding out. And <laughs> I'm glad that you have so much experience and knowledge to be able to like talk this stuff over with. It's super cool to hear your perspectives and your input on these things. It's been a fun conversation. Likewise, thank you so much. And I've just, I'm just like here, like, oh my gosh, just loving to hear your perspective and and that journey through not just the dev education piece, but how that education brings into supporting projects that we interact with every day, every year, every decade. So Joe Eames, thanks again, man. Thank you. Thank you, Sydney. All right. So without a doubt, I'd say the most fun about that episode was just taking a moment and thinking about the last three decades or wait, two decades, I should say, the last two decades of what the intention of our software and our operating system and what we've been trying to build. So the difference between how we built for the 2000s, the 2010s, and then of course, the 2020. So moving again from server side to client side, and now even serverless. And yeah, I'm a huge fan. This was a really fun conversation. If, yeah, if you want to hang out more, just let me know. Um, My DMs are open. If you have any ideas, any guest recommendations, if you want to come build with us, let's see, I'm going to drop a link, alsystems.com forward slash community, where there's 495,000 devs where our forms are very, very active. You get a response in about two hours. It's it's a good time, y'all. So I greatly appreciate it. Feel free to reach out. And yeah, I'm excited to hang out again with you next time. I'll be in your pocket, on your phone, probably. Who knows? Until next time.